Tales of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. Suffolk and Nassau County for the duration of the blizzard. Due to sub-freezing temperatures, all citizens are urged to remain in their homes. The only thing we have to fear is an We seem to have temporarily uh, lost the signal from Albany. That was our governor, uh, the Honorable Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, reminding everyone not to go out for the duration of the blizzard. Uh, we'll bring you up to the minute reports as we get them. Uh, keeping our signal on the air to provide you with uh, timely news, bulletins, and entertainment throughout the storm. Ah. <laughs> uh. mm. Back with Sense and Gum, the brand fortified with real cane sugar. Um. <clears throat> and now, ladies and gentlemen, for today's episode, we'd plan to present H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness. Ah, uh, due to the blizzard, Lester Mayhew, our host, is stuck at home. Uh, but with your indulgence, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to um, carry on in his um, <clears throat> stead. A box of dictaphone recordings was recently discovered in the home of a professor at Arkham's famed Miskatonic University. The professor, Albert N. Wilmarth, was an instructor in literature and folklore, and his whereabouts are currently unknown. The recordings were found by Marjorie Pittman, Professor Wilmarth's secretary. Mrs. Pittman said the professor recently returned from a trip to Vermont and was working on a new book. She showed police the shattered remains of a large number of additional wax phonograph cylinders in a waste bin at Professor Wilmarth's home, but was able to recover the cylinders we have here. She entrusted them to us so we could play them for you. They all appear to be numbered, so we'll start with number one. One moment, please. I'm fitting the cylinder onto the player. <laughs> this isn't the kind of equipment we usually use here at the station. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> uh, now, uh, together, let's hear what we have. September 19th, 1928. I'm back home now. I left Akeley's Ford at a garage near the Brattleboro Station. We'll, uh, well, we'll sort all that out later. I was on the train all night with as many cylinders as I could carry with me. The ones I made, and some of Henry's that I found and haven't even heard yet. This Akeley matter has been consuming me for well, almost a year now. And I think it's time for me to gather my thoughts and make something out of them. I can't deny I've had a bit of a shock. And I suppose even my own imagination may have gotten the better of me. 
I think the most important thing right now is that I've got to write it down. I, once all the pieces are correlated, it, it, it stands to be the most significant look at this folklore ever. Even more than the Davenport book. Henry and I were really on to something fascinating, and if he is... I mean... I owe it to him to really explain it, to publish. I'm sorry, Marjorie. <laughs> Guess I'm still a little muddled. I should go back to the beginning. The whole matter began, so far as I'm concerned, with the flood and the things that people reported seeing in the waters. A disaster like that, so much destruction, so much death. It's no wonder people's imaginations got carried away. That's... That's what people do when they're confronted with incomprehensible tragedy. They find patterns even where there aren't any, just so they can feel in control. You remember, there, there was that Mr. Bugby near Montpelier. His description was straight out of Davenport. Of course I thought it was... I mean, really, it was a, a textbook embodiment of my argument. And that was just one of the reports. You, you, you know, that would be the way to start the new book, with a, a thorough review of... Let's comb through the coverage from the Brattleboro Reformer, or, or maybe a transcription of the radio coverage of the Flood. That might be a great way to... Sorry, uh, ladies and gentlemen, everything's all right here. It's just these dictation cylinders only hold a few minutes of recording. Excuse me while I put on the next one. Uh, let's see. Uh, this one is uh, number two, but it, it's dated November 5th, 1927. Hmm, that's almost a year earlier than the one we just heard. Uh, this one has a label on it from a WRMU in Arkham. Worldwide wireless news and our ongoing coverage of the floods sweeping across New England. For an update, we're connecting to a live signal from newsman Nelson Barr in Brattleboro. Tell us, Nelson, what's the current situation there in Vermont? Well, the devastation at this hour, see, it's simply unbelievable. And I'm coming to you now from high atop the tallest structure in Brattleboro, the seven-story Hook of Dunham building. At two o'clock yesterday afternoon, the Connecticut River at the Vernon Dam was tearing over that structure at a height of about 15 feet above ordinary flashboard level. A volume of water more than 10 times above normal. This flood will go down in history, ladies and gentlemen. Have there been any injuries or fatalities where you are? Six bodies have been recovered, but authorities fear that it's just the beginning. The body of the state's lieutenant governor, S. Hollister Jackson, was recovered in Potash Brook. Jackson's car stalled while attempting to drive through the rising brook near his home at Nelson and Tremont Streets in Bar. He began walking towards his house, and water rushing fast enough to cut a channel across the unpaved street carried him for nearly a mile. Searchers are out now looking for others. As you can imagine, searching for survivors in all the mud and debris, it's, it's a terrible task. Heartbreaking work. And in addition to the loss of human life, there is uncountable devastation of livestock and wildlife. Carcasses of deer and even moose have been seen in flooded rivers. I spoke to one local man who'd come down the West River from up north towards Newfane, who told me he'd seen other just terrible things in the water, including organic shapes unlike any kind of animal known to Vermont or indeed anything he had ever seen before. What kind of things? Let me see. Uh, 
he, uh, he described them as, uh, quote, pinkish things, about five feet long, with crab-like bodies bearing fins or wings and several sets of limbs. An oddly similar report came from Caledonia County above Lyndonville. The countryside, it's clearly in a panic. An old Indian burial ground near Somerset was washed out, and I spoke with several horrified witnesses who saw skeletal remains as far downstream as Wilmington. People in the region must be at their wit's end. The weather is expected to continue cloudy and somewhat cooler tonight. Floodwaters here were the beginning to subside. Remarkably, many unflappable Vermonters say they're ready to begin rebuilding immediately. Thank you, Nelson. Stay tuned to this wavelength for more on-the-spot coverage. We all remember those terrible times, and Brattleboro wasn't even as hard hit as towns further north. Still, folks made a remarkable recovery. Um, well, here's recording number three. All right, Marjorie, if you type another letter to the editor of the Arkham Advertiser, uh, November 16th, 1927, dear sir. I would like to respond yet again to the arguments put forth in the Pendrifter column Without realizing it, in citing the evidence brought to light by the recent flooding, Mr. Marshall is actually reinforcing my argument. He cites local farmers known to him who have seen, quote, uh, innumerable queer footprints or tracks and curious circles of stone not made by nature, end quote. New paragraph. Uh, no doubt local farmers and other hill-dwelling rustics have seen indentations in the mud which they have not been able to identify. Such things happen all the time, and always have. But now, there is a widespread tendency to connect these sites with a primitive, half-forgotten cycle of whispered legend, which old people have resurrected for the occasion. If you take a man whose nerves are exhausted, an uneducated man, and expose him to some unusually alarming phenomenon, say the broken remains of some drowned and decayed person or animal, then without even knowing that he's doing it, his unconscious mind grasps for meaning, and some half-remembered story his grandmother told him half a century ago comes to mind, and just like that, a carcass whirling in an eddy of the Winooski is transformed from being something pitiful to something fantastical. Mr. Marshall cites more quote-unquote evidence in the form of anecdotal tales told by his neighbors. Tales of, uh, of huge crab creatures with uh, uh, many pairs of legs and two great bat-like wings in the middle of the back. Some others claim to have heard their buzzing voices in a, a crude imitation of human speech. Mr. Marshall seems to think that because these stories have been told multiple times, from different locations but in somewhat similar ways, it means that they must have some kernel of truth. Mr. Marshall equates reports with evidence. <laughs> in a court of law, this kind of evidence is called hearsay, and it is generally inadmissible because it doesn't prove anything. New paragraph. There is a simple reason why such tales are told many times in many places by many people, and it isn't because they're true. It's because they are the kind of universal and self-reinforcing legends of natural personification which filled the ancient world with fauns and dryads and satyrs. I have investigated such stories for years. It's how folklore comes to be. These tales of monstrous bodies in the rivers of New England are nothing new. More than 150 years ago, the celebrated folklorist Eli Davenport collected stories just like these. They all share the same central notion, 
a hidden race of monstrous beings which lurks somewhere among the remoter hills in the deep woods of the highest peaks. And the phenomenon is not unique to New England. You'll also find Anatolian legends of the Kalikantzeroi and, and even tales of the mysterious Migo in distant Tibet. Sit down with an Irishman and he can tell you many a fine story about a leprechaun. And he'll swear it's all true. Mind you, he cannot show you one, but he'll claim to know someone who has seen them. Such yarns can't be taken seriously beyond the flicker of a campfire or hearthside. So... I hope that Mr. Marshall and his friends will desist in their efforts to perpetuate these ancestral tales as some kind of truth. The truth of the matter is that in the wake of the recent floods, the good people of Vermont will be better served by employing rational thought to the many challenges affecting the region. Uh, your obedient servant, Albert and Wilmarth, Professor of Folklore, etc., etc. Uh, Marjorie, feel free to clean this up a bit if you think it needs it. I don't want to sound... Um, here's the next recording. This one is labeled Tantaquidian Field Interview, uh, February 19th, 1928, cylinder A16. Hey, you, you know how to work one of these things, don't you? Oh, my, yes. I made plenty of my own field recordings, Mr. Wilmarth. Of course. Um, all right. I'm, uh, I'm speaking to Gladys Tantaquidian at her home in Quinnetucket, Connecticut. Uh, thank you for sitting down with me. I, I presume Frank told you what I was interested in? Yes, the legends of the old ones, because of the floods. Davenport says the Abenaki people called them winged ones? Technically, that's a Penacook name. I'm Mahegan. But it was the Penacook who said the winged ones came from the great bear in the sky. They came to our mountains because they were hungry for a kind of stone which they could not find in any other world. Really? Yes. The winged ones were not native to this earth. The mountains were only an outpost for them. They would dig up the stone and then fly back to their own stars. The winged ones would cause no harm to people if they were left in peace. But bad things happened to those who got too near them. It was also bad to listen to the winged ones. They, they spoke to the Penacook? How? They whisper at night in the forest with voices like bees. Voices that were shadows of the voices of men. The winged ones knew the words of the Pequot and the Algonquin in the tongue of the Tuscarora. But between themselves, those ones have no need to talk. They speak only to men. I, uh, I notice you speak of them in the present tense. Do you believe they are real? That they exist? I respect the beliefs of those that do. My great-aunt, Fidelia Fielding, was the last living speaker of our Mohican Pequot dialect. She spoke to me of the little people who live in the woods, the Mekiawisug, I recall that on one occasion there was a family dinner in the old parsonage half a mile down the road from here. At one point, she told one of the relatives that she was stepping outside for a minute to talk to the little people. Someone in the tree. She used to visit my family because we didn't ridicule her. We just listened. My mission is to preserve indigenous culture, Professor, not as data in a study or mere artifacts in a museum, but as a living thing in my heart. I see. 
And, uh, what became of them? The Penacook, I mean. Mm. They had a bad time of it. They were absorbed into other stronger tribes until they, like your winged ones, exist only in memory. Legends. But the one thing I want you to remember, Mr. Wilmarth, is... Hold that thought, won't you? Let me put on a new cylinder. The next recording is on a different brand of cylinder and appears to have been mailed to Professor Wilmarth. Number five. May 5, 1928. Mr. Wilmarth, I hope that you'll pardon the inconvenience of my sending you this recording and hope that a suitable player will be available to you. I used to write letters often, but my arthritis prevents me from doing so any longer. I don't have a typewriter, but my son George gave me this uh, dictation recorder that I'm using now. Uh, My name is Henry W. Akeley, and I live in Townsend, Vermont. I read with great interest the Brattleboro Reformers' reprint of your letter on the recent stories of strange bodies seen floating in our flooded streams, that's all. I myself have looked into this matter in great depth for many years. I became interested in the topic when I studied anthropology in college years ago. I've followed much of the academic literature you've cited. I believe I understand your position quite well. But I must say that I am afraid your adversaries are nearer right than yourself. In fact, they have no idea how right they are. To get right to the point, I can assure you that monstrous things do indeed live in the woods on the high hills of this region. I readily admit I have not seen any of the things floating in the rivers as reported, but I have seen their footprints and of late have seen them nearer my own home. And I have overheard voices in the woods that I could not even begin to describe. I appreciate that you are a man of science. Uh, That is why I'm reaching out to you. And as such, you require evidence. I have recorded their strange buzzing voices with this very machine, sir, and I'm willing to share my recording with you. I genuinely wish to know what a scholar like you can make of it. Uh, My object in contacting you is not to start an argument like those in the papers. This discussion is private, and, and publicly, I'm on your side. But, sir, it is true terribly true that there are non-human creatures watching us all the time and worse they have placed spies among us to gather information now i i don't know what it is they get up to but whatever it is they wish to go about their business undiscovered by mankind there is a great black stone with unknown hieroglyphics half worn away which i found in the woods on round hill east of here i took it home with me and, and after that everything changed This leads me to my secondary purpose in contacting you. Uh, Namely, to urge you to hush up the present debate rather than to give it more publicity. People must be kept away from these hills. There's trouble enough with these real estate men flooding Vermont with herds of summer people. I sincerely hope you'll consider refraining from any continuation of the debate in public. I welcome further communication with you and uh, can try to send you my phonograph recording of them, if you like. I... I say try, because I think those creatures have a way of tampering with things around here. Like I said, they have human spies working on their behalf. And little by little, they are trying to cut me off from our world because I know too much about theirs. If things get worse, I may have to leave this part of the country and go live with my son in San Diego. They seem to be making an effort to get the Black Stone back. 
I am on the brink of deciphering that stone, and, and with your knowledge of folklore, you may be able to supply the missing links. Now, I suspect you're familiar with the myths antedating the coming of man to Earth, the Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu cycles hinted at in the Necronomicon. I read that book, too, at the Widener, and I've heard you've got a copy of it there at Miskatonic. I think, Mr. Wilmoth, that we could be very useful to each other. I, I will drive down to Newfane or Brattleboro to send whatever items you authorize me to send. I'm glad I wasn't so involved in this business while my wife was alive. I would have driven her mad. Uh, I hope you won't think me a madman myself. I appreciate your taking the time to listen and to carefully consider the matter, and very much hope you'll write back. Uh, my address is on the envelope. Oh, oh, sorry, uh, one more thing. I am making some extra prints of photographs I've taken. I have no doubt, but they'll pique your interest. Hmm. I wasn't expecting that. All right, folks, this one's labeled six. Marjorie, um, please type the following letter. Henry W. Akeley, RFD number two, Townsend, Wyndham County, Vermont, 10 May 1928, dear Mr. Akeley. Thank you for your letter, oh, strike that, uh, message of the 5th. I'm pleased to say that I have my own dictograph machine, so that playing your recording is, uh, <laughs> uh, my apologies, Mr. Akeley. I'd, I'd intended that my secretary type this as a letter, and it just dawned on me there's no reason for that. I'll just record and post the cylinder directly to you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I was greatly interested to receive your letter, well, your recording. I must admit that I'm fascinated by your alleged accounts of first-hand experiences and the, the physical evidence that you've collected regarding this, uh, uh topic. Um, I'm in the early stages of preparing a, a treatise on the topic, something to bridge the gap between the early research of Eli Davenport and the more contemporary view of New England folklore one sees today. I must say, I would be keenly interested in learning more about these first-hand experiences you've had. And, of course, the Kodak prints and your uh, field recording would be invaluable to my research. All of which is to say, if you would be willing to post them to me in a future... <laughs> I was going to say letter, but uh, let's say along with your next recording, I would be most grateful. Uh, I, I look forward to continuing this most engaging conversation, this uh, exchange of recordings. Well, I, I think it might be fun. Uh, cordially, Albert Wilmarth. Uh, this next one, number seven, is labeled May 12th. Hmm. That's just a couple of days later. Hello, Mr. Wilmoth. Uh, I'm so pleased that my recording to you seems to have been received in the spirit in which it was sent. I was actually uh, quite pleased that you sent me the recording of yourself rather than a letter. It gets lonely up here, and playing your recording was like sitting down to chat with a new friend. I thank you for it. 
Now, as promised, I'm enclosing a series of Kodak prints I took in the vicinity of my farm. Uh, some are slightly farther off at Round Hill and Dark Mountain, but they're all near here. I've labeled each photo on the back. If you uh, find the photo marked A, I think you'll find it interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, this is a close view of one of the footprints, which I referred to previously. The, there are innumerable such prints in the area. Uh, this one in particular, though, captures a very distinct impression. You can see that the creature has some weight, as the uh, lowest point in the print is perhaps an inch and a half below the level of the ground. I thought this print might also be of interest because it was taken at the edge of the road in front of my home and not far from my mailbox. It's hard to tell what direction is the front or the back. Now, I grew up hunting in the area, and I can assure you the spacing of the prints are unlike any animal tracks I've ever seen. Uh, photo B is one I took in my parlor of the uh, black stone I referred to previously. Its shape is so unusual one might think it was sculpted or manufactured somehow. I don't think that's the case, though. I'm sure you've seen geologic samples in your university museum which display an unsettling geometry, which is the result of perfectly natural geologic forces. I think that's the case here. What, of course, is not natural is the unmistakable writing on the thing. I'd be curious to hear what you make of the writing. I have a few theories of my own, but I'd like to hear your opinions before I share my current theory. The Kodak doesn't perfectly capture the characters. You'll find them to be quite distinct when I send you the stone and you can examine it in person. Uh, photo C is a view of the standing stones on the summit of Dark Mountain. Uh, you might remember in Davenport's book, the Indians he interviewed claimed that the stones were put there long before men came to the area. It's hard to make out, but if, if you use a magnifier, you might just be able to see that the lighter-colored areas at the base of the stones are masses of footprints of the creatures. I think they use them in some kind of ritualistic way. It, it's fascinating to think that perhaps they have their own culture and rituals. Ah, just a moment, the dogs are... Uh, where was I? Uh, ah, and I, I included a few other Kodaks of the house and farm and so forth. Uh, there's one I took with a timer. Don't be frightened by the bearded monstrosity with the rifle kneeling next to the dogs. Uh, the dogs are really my only friends these days, and the creatures don't seem to like them at all. And boy, do the dogs ever hate those footprints when they find them near the house. Well, it's clear they, they pick up some kind of scent near them. I have a few more theories about the things that I'd like to run past you, but I don't think I can talk fast enough to fit it all in the remaining portion of the cylinder. Uh, one moment here. I'll start a fresh one. Huh, that cylinder has a tag that says it's the first of four, but the next one looks like it was posted from Wilmarth, not to him. Maybe the rest of Akeley's message isn't here. Well, let's move on to recording number eight, dated a week later. May 16th, 1928. Hello again, Mr. Akeley. I uh, received your most recent recordings. <laughs> Receiving four cylinders was a welcome surprise, as of course were the Kodak prints. They were quite simply fascinating. To tell the truth, I, I found myself up late into the evening, studying them in detail with my magnifier. I appreciated the photos of yourself and your farm. They gave one a sense of context to the whole matter that we're discussing. <laughs> your mention of the uh, monstrosity certainly gave me a chuckle. The, uh, the footprint certainly is puzzling. It appears that there's two outer convex indentations in it, suggesting something slightly akin to a lobster's claw or a crab's pincher's. The indentation is so distinct, it suggested to me that the 
well, let's call it a foot of the thing, must be of a hard kind of tissue. To see such a thing so near your own home must be... Well, uh, the, the photograph that most captivated me was of the black stone. Uh, truly, I've never seen anything like it, and I've seen the Nikal tablets. <laughs> well, photos of them. I've seen seal stones engraved in Linear A. My colleague Nathaniel Ward has shown me some Paleolithic pieces that... Oh, well, I suppose that's another matter entirely. If that black stone's not man-made, or... Well, it's certainly hard to know what to make of it. You rightly mentioned geologic forces can create samples of remarkable shapes and symmetry, but I really was unprepared for this. Some of the characters did seem reminiscent of hieroglyphs I saw in the Necronomicon, but I would want to consult with it again before arriving firmly at a conclusion that they are indeed the same characters. Even then, I'm not a trained linguist. But I'd also be eager to examine the stone in person, see if there are effacements or other indicators of how the characters were cut or, or impressed into the surface of it. I'm wondering if Bill Dyer in our geology department might be prevailed upon to help us determine what the chemical makeup of the stone itself is. I have no doubt he'd find it a deeply interesting specimen. Colleagues in our chemistry and astronomy departments, too, would be very excited to take a look at a specimen like this. All of which is to say, if you'd be willing to send it my way, I would be very interested to see it and would happily reimburse you for any expenses incurred. Likewise, I'm eager to hear your, uh, your field recording of the famed buzzing voices of the creatures. You know, in reading Davenport, I've always tried to imagine just what his subjects are describing. All the reports are so vague. To hear the sounds playing from my own dictaphone machine would be a, a huge boon to my research. I was equally impressed by what you had to say in the latter half of your last sending. The things that you've seemed to have seen and heard are certainly unsettling. I must say, the details you provided have definitely given me a lot to think about. And I tend to agree with your view that these morbidities and the Himalayan Migo are probably one and the same order of phenomenon. <laughs> Without an actual biological specimen, I fear our efforts at taxonomy are largely conjecture. Even if one had a specimen, or even a, a tissue sample, I'm afraid I'm not qualified to speculate on whether they're animal, vegetable, or some kind of fungoid creature, as you suggest. I might consult a member of the zoology faculty here as well, Reginald Dexter. May I ask how you arrived at your theory that they have... Electrons with a wholly different vibration rate from ours? Yes, it might explain why they can't be photographed on ordinary camera films and plates, but I'd need a physicist to walk me through how such a thing could be possible. Uh, before I run out of room, I wanted to address your point about not letting the debate continue in public. I'm willing to promise you that I won't send any more letters to any more editors, but I would very much like to continue talking with you. And I would like to see that stone with my own eyes. And while I'm interested in what my colleagues at the university might have to say about it, you have my word that I'll refrain from sharing it with anyone without your express advance consent. I, I hope that you are keeping well and eagerly await your next recording and the chance to review this additional evidence. Uh, best regards, Albert Wilmarth. The next recording is dated June 2nd, 1928. My dear Wilmarth, if we are to continue our collaborative inquiry into the matter, then I am afraid I must insist that you call me Henry. I'm pleased to hear that.
found the Kodax compelling. In lieu of being here and seeing these things in person, they're the next best thing. I appreciate your eagerness to examine the Black Stone and hear the recording of the creatures. Uh, believe me, I'm eager to share them with you. However, it is essential that I take precautions. I, I believe I mentioned in a previous recording that there are spies. I am now quite certain of the fact that they have some humans working in league with them. The creatures are limited in how they can move about and, of course, wish to remain unseen. But their human allies can do their bidding out in the open, and as such, present a hazard to inquiries like yours and mine. I am certain that one of their agents was a fellow who lived in the next valley over up above the bridge. This whole past year, he'd been paying more attention to me than was necessary. Coming by, asking lots of questions about things I might have heard or seen. I got word two months ago that he'd taken his own life. If you'd known the fellow, he just wasn't the type. I'm confident that it was their doing. Maybe somehow he wronged or offended them and they concluded their relationship. Uh, there's another farmer, Walter Brown. He lives down the valley a piece. I'm pretty confident that he's in league with them, too. Don't dismiss this as the ramblings of a paranoid old coot, Mr. Wilmarth. I am a keen judge of character, and I can assure you, they do have spies. I suspect they can listen in on my telephone calls, and they're surveilling my mail. Our exchange of cylinders may have been a fortuitous advantage for us. Had we been sending letters, they'd probably open them and read them, but I doubt there's many folks up this way who can play a dictaphone cylinder. My point here is that caution is necessary with my field recording of the creatures, and particularly with the Black Stone. I'll post this cylinder from the local post office in Newfane, but I'll make the drive down to Brattleboro in my old Ford and post the field recording from there. To be on the safe side, Wilmoth, don't play it for anyone else. Uh, not yet, anyway. I I'm sure your colleagues are all qualified, decent men, but I think it's most prudent if we keep this between ourselves for the time being. If the hill creatures are keeping an eye on me, they may well have people out there keeping an eye on you. I don't just say this to frighten you. I, I just think we should exercise some caution. I don't even go into Townsend for supplies now, except in broad daylight. But I think you need to hear that field recording, so I'll send it. Once you've heard it, let me know what you think. Take care. Henry. All right, ladies and gentlemen, cylinder number 10 here is one of those old blue Emerald records. Uh, it's dated on the sleeve here, probably by Mr. Akeley, May 1st, 1915, 1 a.m., near cave, Dark Mountain. Sorry, these old recordings are brittle. I don't want to break it. I'm rather eager to hear this field recording myself. Yogurt is the youngest child rolling alone in the black. 
unusual. Just to be clear, the record didn't break, but it does just suddenly stop there. All right, let me put this one away. Here we are. Number 11. This is again one of the newer cylinders the kind Wilmarth's been using. This one is dated July 10th, 1928. Henry, I'm concerned that you did not receive my previous recording. I received your field recording on July 1st and posted a cylinder back to you on the 2nd. It's hard to imagine that you wouldn't have received it by now. Either you didn't get my recording or you did receive it and I haven't received your reply. You said something earlier about your mail being interfered with. Do you, do you think one of these spies might have confiscated a cylinder? It's hard to imagine what they'd do with it. Has that Walter Brown character you mentioned before been around the farm? I hadn't thought of it before, but... If we were sending traditional letters, we could keep carbon copies in case of such an eventuality. Once a cylinder has been mailed off, there's no record of it at all. I'll keep my fingers crossed that tomorrow's post might bring your response, and meanwhile, I'll see if I can talk to one of the students here about setting up some kind of duplicate recorder, so that I can at least have copies of the messages I sent to you. It goes without saying that I was astonished by your recording of... of them. I assume the first voice must be that of someone in league with them, maybe one of these spies you've mentioned. Did you get a real look at that person? Do you recognize the voice? He doesn't sound like he's from Vermont, that's for certain. And the other voice, well, I can understand now why everyone has such a hard time describing it. Though, though I'd say Davenport was right on the mark when he called it a, a buzzing imitation of human speech. There were a number of words that I couldn't catch. I'm, I'm hoping to get a word in with Henry Armitage at the library and see if he might recognize any of them. Oh, don't worry, I won't play the recording or explain the source of the words. Regarding the black stone, I, I think perhaps you're right that it would be safer if you weren't to initiate the shipment yourself. I will wire the railway and make arrangements for delivery. And once a plan is in place, I'll wire you with the particulars, and you can drop the stone off at the station in Brattleboro. I can then send you a follow-up wire to let you know that it's arrived safely. I hope everything is all right with you, Henry. This interruption in our communication has been troubling. I very much hope to hear from you soon. Yours truly, Albert. Recording 12 is dated July 19th, 1928. Uh, uh, hold, hold, hold the line, please. I'm, I'm connecting a recorder. This is my second attempt to track. All right, can you hear me? Yes. I'm sorry, would you repeat what you said a moment ago? Like I said, after your call yesterday, I spoke to Thomas, the railway express clerk from the BNM 5508. He said that the train pulled into North Station about 35 minutes late. But there was no package addressed to you on it. No, no, that can't be. 
My friend sent me a wire saying he put the package on the train in Bellows Falls himself. How could he... Uh, no, Thomas did say that he had an argument with some fellow when the train was waiting at the station in Keene. An argument? What about? With who? He said that the fellow's voice was so thick and droning. <laughs> Made him kind of dizzy listening to him. What does this have to do with my missing package? Well, it seems that this fellow was also very concerned about some heavy box that he was expecting. But it wasn't even on the company's books. I'm sorry, sir, but it's not clear to me either. Thomas couldn't quite recall the upshot. Said his head cleared up once the train began to move. What was he... Drunk? Is he the sort of fellow one can trust? Oh, no, sir. He's wholly reliable. Well, this was... It's a very important package. Oh, yes, sir. From a, a, a friend who's in trouble. We do apologize, sir. We've got your information. We'll make sure everyone keeps an eye out for it. Well, you do that. The next recording is from August 15th, 1928, which is about three weeks later. is dated August 20th, 1928. Western Union, it's Wise the Wire. How can I help you? I'd like to send a wire. Certainly, sir. May I have your name? Albert N. Wilmarth. And the recipient? What's the address? Henry Akeley. That's A-K-E-L-E-Y. RFD number two, Townsend, Wyndham County, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And the message, sir? Uh, I would like to come up and help deal with situation, period. I feel partially responsible for your predicament, period. I will take up issues with local authorities on your behalf, period. 
able to come as early as next week, period. Please do not hesitate to let me know what you would like me to do, period. Got that? Yes, sir. Will this be full rate service, sir? Yes. Very well. That will be $5.25. What? That's outrageous. You could save words by using a standard code book. Even two entire sentences. Blackburns, perhaps, or the R12? Uh, I can't imagine he has a code book. Then may I suggest eliminating all the punctuation and replacing the final sentence with the simple phrase, please advise. That will save you $8.80. Please advise. Yes, that works. Oh, thank you. Anything else, sir? The recipient. He's had issues where his mail has been interfered with. Can I be certain... Sir, no one interferes with Western Union. No one. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for your help. The charge will be added to your telephone bill. Thank you for using Western Union. Good day. The next recording, ladies and gentlemen, has a note attached to its sleeve with a rubber band. Recovered from Aitley's, never sent. Dated early September, 1928. Hmm. Well, it is numbered 15. Let's hear it. If this recording is found and I am no longer alive, please get it to Albert Wilmarth, care of Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts. Albert, this may be the end. I, I, I want you to... I mean, they're right outside right now. They're never going to let me get to California. siege on my house. Last night, one of the things landed on my roof. I could, I could hear the buzzing. I turned Gemma, my big Alsatian bitch, on the thing, and she, she tore into it. Then the thing died right there on my lawn. I saw it up close, Albert. I, I touched it. I actually touched it, Albert. And, and as soon as the sun came up, the, the carcass decayed. It, it, it evaporated. It was horrible. It's even worse than we guessed. And from the... Albert, listen, can you hear them? Go on now. Get... All of you, you leave me alone, I'll leave them alone. That's no longer possible. Time to end this mystery. Get away from here, whoever you are. I've got a rifle. I'll shoot you. I'll shoot them too. You can't make me go. I am not going. Ever. Be reasonable, Well, that's... Apparently, Mr. Wilmarth never heard that one. All right. A recording 16. Um, I'm going to record uh, or document this. 
It's September 7, and there's been a turn of events. At long last, I heard from Henry. Well, I didn't hear from him, as he sent an actual letter, and a typed one at that. I sent a telegram to the sheriff in Wyndham County last week asking him to check in on Henry, and he wired back that he was fine. Really, I... I don't understand what's going on with him. Two weeks ago, he sent that odd telegram, and then nothing. And now, this letter, in which he's completely changed his tune. For months, he's been in a confrontation with the creatures. But now, he's met with a human representing them? He used to say they were spies. Now, he doesn't say who it was, but now he claims all of our legends about the creatures are... Here, what did he say? Uh-uh. Ignorant misconceptions of allegorical speech. <laughs> I'd certainly like to interview this representative fellow. Whoever it was, he certainly convinced Henry. I now regret the harm I have inflicted upon these incredible beings. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. I... I don't know what to make of it. Henry doesn't seem the type to be bamboozled by some... Fast talker. It would be a relief if there was really something to it. He says they've given him a, a, a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure which few other mortals have ever shared. That sounds tempting. But then again, maybe he's just losing his grip. He sounded pretty shaken in his past few recordings. All that time by himself up in those hills... But why a letter all of a sudden, and a typed one at that? A-K-E-L-Y. <laughs> Clearly, he doesn't type much. Says he just bought the machine in Brattleboro. I don't know what to do at this point, except... just actually go up there and see for myself. It's time to do what I probably should have done in the first place. Take the recorder and interview Henry formally. Maybe this representative person of his, too. If the situation has calmed down, there's never going to be a better chance to record his first-hand observations of the folklore. Akeley knows it better than anyone else alive. This book could be definitive, even more than Davenport ever was. And if there really is something more to it, like he says, oh, this would go well beyond folklore. This could be a, a revolutionary discovery in, in biology, in history, in cosmology itself. Either way, the poor old guy could clearly use a visit from a friendly face. Marjorie, I want you to make some arrangements for, um... No. I'll do it myself. More prudent to keep Marjorie out of it. I'll make the travel arrangements myself. No one needs to know I'm going. I'll just wire Akeley directly and let him know I'm coming. It's just Vermont. What's the worst that could happen? Oh, dear. Well, uh, let's see. This is recording 17. It's dated September 12th, almost a week later. Uh, uh, I use this for, uh, for field recordings, first-hand accounts of folklore, that sort of thing. This one has a spring-driven motor, so it doesn't need electricity. It's virtually silent, too. It's recording us right now. Is it? <laughs> Ingenious. Looks terribly heavy. Oh, well, this is nothing compared to the old edaphone I had in my office. <laughs> that thing must have weighed 30 pounds. And uh, here in the case, I have blank cylinders so I can uh, record Henry's accounts. Accounts? Of the... 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 some local uh, folklore. I see. I wouldn't get your hopes up too high for recording Henry. No? Why's that? 
As I said, he's in poor health. His voice, it's, it's faint. He's having one of his spells. Some type of asthma, I think. That's why he asked if I'd pick you up the station. Well, most obliging of you. No, no, think nothing of it. Whoa, whoops. <laughs> These hills. The scenery is uh, breathtaking. First time to Vermont, Mr. Wilmar? Why, yes, yes, it is. I think you'll find the time runs differently here. Um... Now don't forget to set your watch back. We don't go in for that newfangled daylight saving scheme. Ah. If you'll pardon my saying, you've got a distinctive voice. It sounds familiar. Have you ever... Ah, everyone sounds the same on those things. They're worse than the wireless. So, Mr. Noyes, how did you come to know Henry? You, uh... You don't seem like you're from around here. Oh, now that's an interesting story. I first met Henry when... Let's see. Here's number 18. This case has the same date, the 12th, on it, and two times on it. 4.15 and 8 o'clock p.m. Hmm. Maybe there's two separate recordings on it. I'm uh, here in front of the Akeley farmhouse. Mr. Noyes has gone inside to let Henry know we're here. Odd fellow. Rather a relief, he says he has to go attend to some other business and can't stay. He didn't seem familiar with the, the folklore, but then he never did get around to saying where he was from. And his voice... Still, he, he was friendly enough. Mighty decent of him to pick me up. It was not a short drive. <laughs> Glad to stretch my legs. Well, this is where it all happened. It's hard to reconcile Henry's stories with the house itself. It's a, it's a perfectly lovely, white, two-and-a-half-story house. Bigger than most of the other ones I saw on the drive. There seems to be a whole complex of barns and sheds, even a windmill behind and to the right, all linked up with elegant arcades. <laughs> I can see why Henry was so upset about the thought of abandoning it. Mountains looming over everything up here. That one must be Dark Mountain. It is oddly beautiful. Could be a Da Vinci painting. <laughs> so peaceful. So... quiet. I wonder if he still has his dogs. <gasps> that footprint in the Kodak, it must have been taken right by... <gasps> There's, uh, there's some right there. It's an actual... Good luck. Henry's ready for you. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, thank you. I'll be right up. I'll let the recording keep playing in case there is an eight o'clock... So o I have finally met Henry Akeley in the flesh. At the moment, I'm in my room in his house, a guest room over the parlor. The poor man, he... He told me when we were first corresponding that he was 57 years old, but if that's true, then he's aged 10 years or more this summer. He seems to be very ill, indeed, all wrapped up in scarves and blankets and mittens. I guess I don't really know much about asthma, but this is... 
He seems so feeble. He can barely move his arms and legs. He's got himself bundled up in an armchair. Says he'll just sleep there all night. Kept the blinds closed. As he says, the light hurts his eyes. He's just... Well, he's, he's no longer the hardy farmer, posing with his rifle and his dogs. I'm so glad I didn't wait any longer than I did to come up here. All the same, he seems eager to talk once he's rested up. He took the trouble to lay out a supper for me. A, a nice store cheese and sandwiches and cake. Well, the coffee was... Oh, well, it doesn't matter. There's an odd smell about the place. Maybe it's just... Uh, I don't know. My head was throbbing downstairs. It's a little better now. Nerves, I guess. He says he has a lot to tell me. You do feel the remoteness, the isolation up here. I wasn't sorry to see noise go. There was something... Well, it's really just me and Henry now. <sighs> it's been a long day. Recording 20 has the following label on it. Henry Akeley, formal interview, September 13th, 1928. Cylinder number one. Turn up the light. It's just that I'd I... rather you didn't. Um, all right, let me just. Uh... You brought the Kodak photos and the recordings I sent you. Uh, they're right here in my uh, valise. Good. Good. Are you ready, Henry? Normally, I start with. Einstein is wrong, you know. I beg your pardon? Certain objects and forces can move with a velocity greater than that of light. With their aid, I expect to go backward and forward in time and actually see and feel the earth of remote past and future epochs. Their aid? Do you mean the hill creatures? Because... Yes. You can't imagine the degree to which those beings have carried science. There is nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. The prodigious surgical biological, chemical, and mechanical skill of the Outer Ones is breathtaking. So yes, with their aid, I expect to visit other planets, even other stars and galaxies, a mastery of time and space. Okay, let's, um, let's take a step back here and... Oh no, we shall take a step forward, you and I. A small step at first, to Yogov. The nearest world fully peopled by the beings. It is a strange, dark orb at the very rim of our solar system. Yugoth, this is where they come from? At the proper time, you know. The beings there will direct thought currents toward us and cause it to be discovered. Or perhaps let one of their human allies give the scientists a hint. There are mighty cities on Yugoth. Great Tiers of terrace towers built of black stone, like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from Yogotha. Our sun shines there no brighter than a star, but the beings need no light. They have other, subtler senses, and put no windows in their great houses and temples. 
to visit Yelgoth would drive any weak man mad, yet I am going there. The black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious cyclopean bridges, things built by some elder race, extinct and forgotten before the things came to Yelgoth from the ultimate voids, <laughs> ought to be enough to make any man a Dante or a Poe. If only he can cling to his sanity long enough to speak of what he has seen. Henry, what are you talking about? <laughs> yes, they value intelligent members of our species, like you and me. And they are willing to reveal to a select few the most extraordinary secrets of the universe. I see. Um, when... Did the creatures first come here? The first Indian accounts of them are... They were here long before the Indians. Long before mankind walked upon the earth. Before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over. They remember all about sunken Vilya when it was above the waters. They've been inside the earth, too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of. Some of them in these very Vermont hills and great worlds of unknown life down there. But you're saying they came from this Yugoth? That's their home? The outer beings are perhaps the most marvelous organic things in or beyond all space and time. Members of a cosmos-wide race of which all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the interstellar void in full corporeal form. Their external resemblance to animal life and to the sort of structure we understand as material is a matter of parallel evolution rather than that of close kinship. Their brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Um, Henry, this is, this... Why are they here? What, what do they want from us? <laughs> Come closer. Let me whisper it to you. My. Uh, you know, astronomers discovered a new planet at the edge of the solar system not long ago. Pluto. Well, here's recording 21. Same date, formal Akeley interview, cylinder number 9. 2 through 8 are... not here. That last part, can you say that, that, that last part again on the new cylinder? You and your little cylinders. Oh, please, Henry, re repeat what you said about going with them. I, I don't understand. Of course. I'll show you another way. Rise and go to the bureau there. Why? Please, humor me. Now, remove the drapery. Good God, Henry. These machines, what are they? You might just as soon ask who will Marv. You see those large metal cylinders there at the end? There are four different sorts of beings presented in those receptacles. Three humans, six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporeally, two beings from Neptune, and the rest entities from the central caverns of an especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy. Round Hill, like most of the beings' main outposts, is a very cosmopolitan place. 
Ice. Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experiment. Do you see the cylinder marked B67? Uh, yes, this one. Place it in the middle there, yes, just so. You see the tall device with the two glass lenses in front? It has a cord. Plug it into one of the connectors on the cylinder. Henry, what are these machines? What do they... Now, the box with the vacuum tubes and the sounding board. Plug that in as well. Last, the sound capture apparatus. Yes, the same way. What is... Good evening, Albert Wilmarth. What? Who's there? Is this some kind of radio trickery, Henry? Because I... I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being, like yourself. I am here, with you. My brain is in the cylinder, and I see, hear, and speak through these electronic vibrators. In a week I am going across the void, as I have been many times before, and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Rakeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for we have kept close track of your correspondence with our friend. I am of course one of the men who have become allied with the outside beings visiting our planet. I met them first in the Himalayas, and have helped them in various ways. In return, they have given me experiences such as few men have ever had. Oh my god. I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects. All this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by fissions so adroit that it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods which make these extractions easy and almost normal. In this wondrous vessel, I am immune from physical harm, disease, even the ravages of age. Where... where is... your body? It's safely stored and vitalized should I want it again, but I can't imagine I will. This is freedom, in its truest sense. I hope most heartily that you will decide to come with Mr. Rakeley and me. It may seem strange at first to meet the visitors, but I know you will be above minding that. I think Mr. Noyes will go along too. He has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognized his voice as one of those on the record Mr. Rakeley sent you? Noise? Of course. That's where- A I... man with your love of strangeness, and a desire to know the folklore of others, ought not miss this unique opportunity. There is nothing to fear. The transition is painless, and there is much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. Will you join us? Mr. Wilmarth appears to be a bit overwhelmed. It is quite natural. Let us give him time to consider his invitation. But before you go up to bed, Mr. Wilmarth, think of him. Recording 22 is from the same day. No other notation. It's about two in the morning. I'm upstairs again and heard sounds outside my door a few minutes ago. I think someone tried the latch. There's voices and a, a, a kind of buzzing coming from downstairs. I, I don't know if this recorder can pick up what I'm hearing, but I'm going to hold the handpiece up to the door and hope to catch them. I, I think it's that machine talking, but, it, but it's not the voice from before. It's different somehow. It's not the same one that spoke to me. Maybe it's a different cylinder he's objecting to. Be silent. <gasps> Oh, 
Transcribe what I can when I listen to this record. Maybe I'll be able to... This... There are only two recordings left, ladies and gentlemen. Number 23, dated September 13th, 1928. I'm in Henry's Fort. I had to get out. It's, um... I'm not quite sure where I am. I just drove as fast as I could somewhere... Outside of Newfane, maybe? I don't know. It's dark. It's raining. Uh, God. Um, after the meeting I overheard in Henry's house, I waited at the door to the bedroom for some time to make sure no one, nothing came back. Maybe a half hour. Whenever it finally seemed safe enough, I crept down the stairs to check on Henry. As I snuck down, I could hear someone snoring in a room off to the left, a room I hadn't been in before. I looked in, and it was noise, sleeping on a couch in a living room. I had a small pocket flashlight I had brought with me, and I'm sure it was him. I silently closed and latched the living room door so as not to wake him. I crept into the dark study, expecting to see Henry in the big armchair where I had left him. The dictaphone records from the interview with Akeley were still there on the table. And I noticed some other phonograph cylinders, too. Ones I had sent to Akeley, and, and ones Akeley must have recorded but never sent me. I was looking around for others when the beams of my flashlight caught the bureau, revealing one of the big metal cylinders with sight and hearing machines attached and with a speech machine standing close by. That must have been the encased brain I had heard talking from upstairs. I, I had a perverse impulse to attach the speech machine and see what it would say. God, I wonder if it saw or heard me. I didn't dare meddle with the thing. I just couldn't. Looking closer, I saw that it was not the one marked B-67. It was a new, shiny cylinder labeled Akeley. If I had, I, I, I mean, I, I, I could have talked to it, him, 
He could have explained. No. No, it's, it's better this way. I turned my flashlight to the corner where Henry had been, but the chair was empty. But his clothes were still there. His dressing gown trailed from the seat to the floor, and near it lay the yellow scarf and the rest of it. That queer odor was no longer in the room. I stood there, baffled, and thought about searching the rest of the house when... when my flashlight returned to the vacant easy chair. And I noticed certain objects in the seat. I hadn't seen them at first because of the loose folds of the empty dressing gown. Now, I don't... I can't... It, it wasn't anything really horrible, not in itself. It's what it implied. <laughs> I'm not even sure they were real. I mean, maybe I imagined them. That's what people do in the, in the face of something inexplicable. They imagine, or at least I misperceived it. They, they couldn't have been real. They couldn't have actually been what they looked like. They were some kind of clever constructions, waxen products of some master artist furnished with metallic clamps to attach them to other things. Oh, great God. I ran. I'm sorry, Henry. I ran. I grabbed everything I could, and I ran out of that house as fast as I could. I'm sorry, Henry, but I remembered your Ford, and I found it, and I drove as fast as I could, and now I don't even know where I am. Oh, God. That whisperer in darkness. The odor. The vibrations. Sorcerer. Emissary. Changeling. Outsider. And all the time, in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf. <sighs> Poor devil. Poor devil. In the chair. Perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic resemblance were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Akeley. There is one final recording, ladies and gentlemen. I've saved it for last because, unlike the others, it is not numbered, but had a note attached. It reads... This recording was found on the dictaphone in Professor Wilmoth's house by Arkham Police authorities, who entered his home after I reported that he missed the beginning of the new college term. Mr. Wilmoth's whereabouts are still unknown. I am sending these recordings to you in the hope the public might be able to bring some light to this matter. Sincerely, Marjorie Pittman, Personal Secretary to Albert N. Wilmoth. I'm almost reluctant to play this for you, but we must bring this story to its end. It's September 20th, 1928. I have now listened to the recordings my friend Henry Akeley made that were never sent to me. And now I understand that my dream of writing a book about the lore of the hill creatures is never going to come true. People would never believe it. <laughs> they shouldn't believe it. Better they should believe in leprechauns. 
I have destroyed most of the recordings we made, but <clears throat> I have decided to keep a select few of them and arrange them in a sequence that I hope will make the situation sufficiently clear for the authorities in case I am ever unable to explain it myself. I have come to believe... <sighs> to know, really, that I am still under threat from the Migo. They've been watching me for months. They have human agents monitoring my communication and movements. Noise is just one of them. Just like with Henry, they won't let me walk away. I've reached out to a trusted colleague from Miskatonic University. He believes me. I think he does. He says he does. He has a very wealthy friend, a university donor, with the means to get me to safety and help me determine what, if anything, we can do. He says there's a group, a kind of cult, for lack of a better word, that knows all about these fungi from Yuggoth and works to do something about them. Nate and his friend have a contact in this group and are coming soon to take me to meet him. If it is a him. I am leaving everything behind. As far as the world is concerned, Albert Wilmarth is gone. But I'll be back. I'll be right there! You've been listening to The Whisperer in Darkness, a special storm isolation edition of Dark Adventure Radio Theater, brought to you by our sponsor, Beckwith Sense and Chewing Gum. Filling in for our usual host, I'm your announcer, Everett Bellamy. The blizzard outside is still raging, friends, and it looks like more bad weather for a while. As long as the roads remain impassable, and until the sun comes out again, this is Dark Adventure Radio Theater reminding you to please stay warm and safe inside your homes. The Whisperer in Darkness was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman, based on the story by H.P. Lovecraft. The Dark Adventure theme music was composed by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure ensemble featured a skeleton crew of Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Andrew Lehman, Dick Lazardo, Jacob Lyle, Kevin Stidham, Josh Temke, and Time Winters. Tune in next week for The Oahe Nightmare, a stirring tale of Hawaiian islanders in the grisly-infested wilderness of Idaho. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HP LHS Broadcasting Group. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HP LHS Broadcasting Group. Good heavens. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HP LHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HP LHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 89.